In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 16th Sunday in uh, the season after Pentecost, and we are still in chapter 16 of Luke's Gospel. You remember that last week we began chapter 16 of Luke's Gospel with the parable of the unjust steward, and that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's still speaking to these same Pharisees, and he's speaking along the same lines. Uh, the Gospeler tells us that the Pharisees are lovers of money. And we seem to, to be shown that the Pharisees have this idea, maybe this might be familiar to you, that if God uh, favors you, that you'll be rich. That if God loves you and he's merciful to you, that the signs will be in your life and that you'll be, uh, you'll be rich and you'll gather many possessions. Today we call that prosperity theology, uh, and it's not new. It's uh, from before the time of Christ. Uh, people thought that uh, if the Lord loved you, that certainly uh, you would have great possessions and uh, that you would flaunt these possessions as a sign of your um, virtue. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. And Jesus is uh, speaking directly to that and saying that God is looking at the condition of the heart, that he is looking for those that are rich towards God and towards uh, their neighbor. And so he moves from the parable of the unjust steward to the uh, parable of Lazarus and the rich man. But unless we think that this is some new understanding, that uh, this is new to Jesus, uh, we again want to go back to the prophets and especially to this uh, ancient prophet Amos, who again, as we talked about last week, uh, is the first of the recorded prophets and perhaps knew Elisha in his youth and Isaiah in his old age. Amos is speaking to that northern kingdom of Israel. You remember that they've had a civil war, and so the northern kingdom of Israel uh, and the southern kingdom of Judah have been separated. And that northern kingdom of Israel is the first that gets taken by the Assyrians, the first that they get conquered and they get renamed Samaria, where we get the Samaritans at the time of Christ. And Amos is speaking to that northern kingdom, and he's speaking about their wealth. Again, their wealth has come because there is a great travel route, a trade route between uh, this great empire of Assyria and the empire of Egypt. And they are passing through this northern kingdom and they're acquiring great wealth because of the trade. And so they start to uh, flaunt that wealth and start to think that the wealth that they've gathered is some indication of God's love for them or of their virtue. And so the prophet stops it and says, no, the money that you have uh, is not an indication of God's uh, love for you, uh, and you need to do an accounting of your heart and of your mind. And so the prophet says uh, that the people are, are at ease and they feel secure. And this seems to be a, a key um, aspect of uh, what keeps people from repentance. We uh, won't repent if we're feeling great about ourselves, right? We feel like everything's great. Why repent? And remember, uh, repentance is this very complex term. I'll show you again what it means. Right? I was going this way, and then I realized, oops, that's not the right way to go. I'm going to turn this way. But if we're at ease and we're feeling secure, why turn? And so those who are gathering uh, great uh, riches in the northern kingdom are thinking that they have this uh, great security 
And the prophet says, have you looked around? Have you considered your estate? Have you done an evaluation? Have you looked at the neighboring kingdoms? Have you looked at the neighboring towns? Have you looked at the armies that are surrounding you? Do you have any real understanding of where you are at in uh, your condition? And clearly they have not. They have not done an accounting. And the most important accounting that Amos seems to bring to them, besides comparing themselves to the other uh, kingdoms, comparing themselves to the other uh, groups of peoples surrounding them, is to consider the state of Joseph. When Amos talks about Joseph here, he's talking, um, of course, about uh, the patriarch Joseph, uh, the second youngest son of, um, of Israel. You remember that it's Joseph that uh, is favored by Israel and uh, gets the coat and his brothers are jealous and uh, they sell him into slavery. And so that's how the, the 12 tribes get into Egypt in the first place. And you remember that when he's in Egypt, uh, Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And from then on, we don't hear about the tribe of Joseph. We hear about the tribes or the half tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim is an especially important tribe because they are the tribe that's right on the border with Judah. And uh, they have uh, the, the peak place of worship, Mount Gerizim, where uh, the tabernacle had been before Jerusalem. So Ephraim is a large and powerful tribe. It's right on the border with Judah. It's the place where they have been worshiping in the tabernacle. And it is of the tribe of Ephraim uh, that the renegade, uh, Jeroboam rises up and leads them into civil war. So Jeroboam is from the tribe of Ephraim. So when we read about Manasseh and Ephraim, when we read about Joseph, we're reading about those that rose up and led civil war for that northern kingdom. They are the leadership of that northern kingdom. And so when Amos says, um, you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, he's saying you're not grieved over the condition of of uh, the descendants of Joseph, and that is that they've abandoned the worship of the one true God. They've abandoned their identity because just to say you are of the tribe of Joseph is to be reminded of the gifts of God and how they got to the promised land in the first place. You've started to think that you have all these things because you're great rather than because of God being great, and you've fallen away from him and started to um, congratulate yourself rather than being dependent upon God. And this is the grief that Amos is calling them into. That grief would say, wait a minute, these good things aren't because of us. These good things are from God and we have uh, an, an owed allegiance and obedience to him and we have to remind ourselves of the, the worship of him and we should not feel so secure and so confident and at ease, but we should uh, be standing vigilant, right? As we were told to do by the prophets to remain vigilant against the intrusion of the kingdoms around us and of their ways of worship. And if they would just look um, just briefly at the condition of the people of God, they would see the way that they had fallen into sin and idol worship. If they had taken an account. Which, of course, is what the parable of the unjust steward was about, right? <coughs> the unjust steward has held up for us this um, fraudster, this criminal, <laughs> as an example because he does what so few people who are supposed to be righteous do. He stops and he takes an account of himself. He takes an honest appraisal of his own spiritual and moral life. And he says, who am I? What am I able to do? And he realizes, not much. I'm going to need help. 
And that's the accounting that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be doing an honest accounting of our own moral lives, and we're supposed to be saying, what can I do on my own? And the conclusion that we're supposed to come to is, not much. I am in need of the Lord and of his mercy and strength. And I have not walked according to his ways. And I'm going to need friends. I'm going to need help. And this, of course, is what continues us to this parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Just a couple of things to note about this parable. Uh, first off, the rich man doesn't get a name. Names are given by God, and they're for eternal life. The rich man is being wiped away from the book of God. He has no name. Lazarus has this beautiful name of the friend of Jesus, and he is uh, noted, and he is placed into the bosom of Abraham. Bosom is a great word that we especially get in the King James Version, and we see bosom in a couple of different places in the Gospels. The bosom is from here to here. That's the bosom. It's from here to here. And in the ancient world for um, dining, uh, people wouldn't sit on tables and chairs the way that we do. These would be very rare articles of furniture. A table would be just a few inches off of the ground, and then people would sit down on the ground and would often recline, and they would recline on pillows. Which reminds me of the way that my grandfather used to watch television, right? He had a big pillow and he'd sit on the floor. So people would lay on a pillow, right, with one arm up, and they would have their legs out away from the table with their chest near the table, and they'd be eating with one hand, right? And then another person, the head of the other person would be right here, right? So they'd be staggered around the table. So the head of the person next to them would be right here, and then another person here, and their legs would be out. And you remember the other place we read about somebody sitting in someone's bosom is St. John being in Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. Right? John gets that place of honor with Jesus at the Last Supper. Lazarus, like St. John, has been given a place of dignity and honor. He's eating with Abraham at the eternal table in his bosom. He's right here. And they're eating together. So Lazarus has been given this incredible gift. The rich man has not done any accounting. He perceives where he's at. He knows the condition of his soul. But his antidote is to continue to use Lazarus as a slave. Send Lazarus. Right? So he hasn't done the accounting to say, oh, Lazarus is no longer my servant. I'm no longer above him. Now I am beneath him. And so he has no ability to uh, engage with any kind of healing or remorse or repentance because he hasn't done that, that accounting. And of course, Abraham says uh, what is one of the scariest lines, I think, really in all of Scripture, which is that he got bad things, you got good things. End of story. I think any American reading that passage should be scared. 
He got bad things. You got good things. And then he asks that somebody uh, come from the dead to warn his brothers. And Abraham says, they won't believe that. It won't have any effect. Which we know Jesus is saying directly to the Pharisees and those that will witness his resurrection and still will not repent. It's an interesting aspect of the miracles that we see that so often we think that if we were to perceive a miracle or if a miracle was to happen in our midst, it would somehow strengthen our faith. This isn't what the gospel suggests at all. The gospel suggests that those who see miracles ignore them. Those who are not willing to do an accounting of their own spiritual lives. And so, of course, the antidote that Abraham gives is that they recognize Moses and the prophets. That they recognize what Amos has said, which is look around and take account. This is what St. Paul is telling Timothy to do in this letter. He's telling Timothy to look around and take account. He's just warned Timothy. Um, here we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 10, right before our <coughs> passage this morning, he's told Timothy this famous line, um, you know, be not a lover of money, right? And the, the, the love of money is the root of all evil, which sometimes people want to shorten and say money is the root of all evil. No, money is not the root of all evil. Money's a brick. You can break a window or build a hospital. It's the love of money. It's putting money um, in the place of God that is dangerous. And so he warns Timothy about this, and he gives him the antidote. He says, flee these things. Flee these things. Flee the love of money. And he says, instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of eternal life. And so St. Paul, again, is admonishing us, reminding us of these organs of virtue. Faith, hope, and love are these faculties of virtue. They're not possessions that we hold. We don't take a little faith or God gives us a little faith and we put it in our pocket. Faith is a way that we live. It's a way that we think. It's a way that we act. It's, a, it's an organ of ourselves. It's a, an activity of our minds and of our hearts. It's a way that we perceive and act in the world. When we live by faith, hope, and love, these are the ways in which we see and act and think in the world. They're faculties. And St. Paul is saying, exercise the faculties of faith, hope, and love. Put them into practice. Later on, he says in verse 17, set their hope on the, not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who provides richly. So there we see hope. Set hope. In other words, you've got hope in your life. What are you hoping on? You're hoping on your riches, on your bank account, on your investments, on the financial markets. Where's your hope? Where are we going to focus it? It's not that some people have hope and some people don't. Everybody's got hope. The question is, where are you aiming? So we're supposed to be aiming our hope upon Christ and upon the resurrection. And our love which we all have, rather than on money or on material possessions, is supposed to be on God and His righteousness, on His steadfastness, His gentleness. 
Our faith, our loyalty, our obedience is supposed to be aimed at the kingdom of God. And then he admonishes the rich to be generous. That's interesting because if you had just done a quick reading of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, you might think that all rich people are going to hell. But clearly that's not the case. Because Abraham is there. And if you remember, Abraham was fantastically wealthy. Abraham was fantastically wealthy. He was a wealthy prince. But Abraham used all of his wealth and all of his possessions in the service of God. He tithed. He protected those who could not protect themselves. He served in loyalty and obedience to God. So that all of his wealth and all that he had was aimed, focused upon, the kingdom of God. And so whether we are rich or whether we are poor makes no difference. The question is, where are our faculties aimed? And have we done an accounting of our lives? I was ordained 17 years ago, and when I was first put into a parish uh, in uh, Kalinga and Limore in the Central Valley of California, I was encouraged by lots of other clergy to preach about generosity. Preach about generosity and giving, because if you can have the tithe, the church will um, succeed, right? Which is obvious. Churches that have tithing members, whether they're 30 members or 300 members, are healthy and strong. Churches that have tippers die, for lots of different reasons. And so I was encouraged to um, talk about generosity. And I tried that, but it never really felt right. And I couldn't really figure out, why doesn't this feel right? And eventually I realized it's because the people in my church are already generous. Most of them more generous than me. I can't really preach generosity. And then Aaron and I finally went through Financial Peace University and Dave Ramsey talked to us about uh, the small number of evangelical Christians that actually tithe. And he said, it's not because they don't want to. It's not because they're not generous. It's because they're broke and they've got no clue how much money they have or where it's going. And then a light bulb came on. It's just like what Amos is telling the people of Israel. You haven't done an accounting. You haven't sat down like the unjust steward and said, what do I have and where is it going? So for us to apply what we have to the work of God, we've got to know what we have. We've got to do a budget. We've got to do a budget of what we have and what we've been given. And of course, we've got to write wills and we've got to get generously out of that. And we've got to organize ourselves and, and our personal lives so that uh, all those things are organized and focused on the kingdom of God. But if we find in our budget that we're prioritizing entertainment or we're servicing debt rather than servicing God, we haven't done an accounting. The same thing if we look at our calendars and we realize that we've been prioritizing ourselves over God and those who are in need, we haven't done a proper accounting. So the first step, like the unjust steward, is to say, oh no, my life is short near the end and I must do an accounting of what the Lord has given me 
and what help I may need. And the help that he promises is his faith and his hope and his love. His own Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and minds to set ourselves and our faculties of reason upon his path and upon his ways that all that we have, all that we have may be in his service and may glorify his name.